Kia ora, no mai, haere mai, and welcome to the Able Audio Podcast. Music technology provides musicians with exciting ways of making and recording music, but so often, both musicians and technology companies leave out the needs of disabled peoples. I'm Sam Morgan, a musician and producer based in Te Whanganui Atara, Wellington and Aotearoa, New Zealand. I have a degenerative eye condition, which has meant that over the last few years, attending shows and going to gigs has become increasingly difficult. I'm also having to work out what it means for me in the coming years if I'm to lose my sight, how will I continue to make music in such a computer-focused space. This podcast seeks to bring to light the exciting work people are doing in this space, elevating the voices and concerns of disabled people and music technology. In each episode, I talk to a different music technologist about their practice, background in music, and how their work interacts with the world of disability. Welcome to the Able Audio Podcast, proudly brought to you by the New Zealand Music Commission. In this episode, we talk to music technologist Chris Ankin. Chris is blind and does a lot of work engaging with audio workstations and, in particular, works with Native Instruments Complete Control Keyboards as an accessible MIDI controller. Chris runs a website called KK Access that provides resources on how to get started with the Complete Control Keyboards, and his advocacy works towards encouraging music technology companies to make their products increasingly accessible. Here's my conversation with Chris. So, like, how did you get into music? Um, how long have you been doing it for, and what interests you the most? Ah, uh, right. Well, I, I guess I'm going to have to immediately confess my age. I'm actually uh, I'm pretty long in the tooth. So, I mean, I was I was born uh, 1964, so that's uh, quite a few years now. I'm, I'm 58 this year. Um, but yeah, our early earliest musical memory was something like being three or four years old at a family wedding and being coaxed up on stage by the band, which probably were a Beatles type of cover band at the time, I would think, in the mid-60s. And um, they encouraged me to sort of play the drums. And um, I, I can actually remember it. And family members obviously there and throwing money up on stage and things like that. So, um, And then literally the, the Christmas after that event, which must have been in the summer, I guess, my parents bought me a little drum kit, which had uh, paper skins, drum skins on it. Uh, and literally the first thing I did was put the stick through the skin. So it kind of um, abbreviated my musical career for some time, actually, from then on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, music, there's no one musical in my family as such. So, you know, it wasn't really until I got to sort of, I don't know, 14 or 15, I suppose, um, that I started to get back into it. I, I mean, I always listened to music, but creatively, I, I kind of started to, you know, write lyrics, even though I didn't have an instrument and like that. But um, this was the, the kind of very late 70s. Um, I was into kind of two-tone music and the specials and Scar and stuff like that. Um, but as musical trends progress, as they, as they did rapidly at that time, um, this kind of electronic era came out. And uh, I kind of got into that um, thing where synthesizers had first become, you know, affordable. Um, so the first thing I did was I, I went out and bought one of these little Casio keyboards, which I kind of immediately regretted because not having done much research, I realized they were quite limited and they weren't really synthesizers as such. You know, they had like a hundred tones built in and, you know, very limiting. Is this um, a, a Casio tone? Uh, it wasn't a Casio, it was a Casio MT30, 
Um, yeah. And they, at the time, I know the one you mean, the Casio VL tone, which was like a little almost pocket sized thing that took batteries and had a little LCD display on it. Mm. Uh, this this actually had little mini keys on it uh, rather than the, the buttons. Um, mm. But uh, literally, you know, you'd, it, it was like a, a hundred tones and you'd press it and it was supposed to be a, a violin that sounded absolutely nothing like a violin and things like that. Yeah. Um, and there, was, there was no rhythm section on it, or drums or anything like that. So, you know, it, again, instantly I, I realized that I, I was going to have to kind of invest more. Um, so then I think I got another model that had drums in it. Um, and then I, it wasn't until it was 1982, actually, that I got my first proper synthesizer, which was, um, it was being sold by a company over in the UK here called uh, Tandy. And I think it's Radio Shack in the US. Um, I don't, don't even know that they're still around. Um, but basically they had a, their own branded version of the Moog, uh, Rogue, which, which was the MG1 realistic. Interestingly enough, Cherry Audio, um, who create sort of a virtual synthesizer, have just done a, uh, a, a sort of a VST version of it in the last year or so. So that's quite nostalgic, but that was my first, um, foray into, you know, what with true synthesis, um, you know, with oscillators and an envelope and, you know, create sounds still very limited because, um, uh, there, there was, it was monophonic. Um, there was no memories on it. So literally, cause I joined a band immediately afterwards and, uh, in between, if you wanted a different sound, you literally had to program it with the knobs and sliders on the fly. Wow. So, you know, when the next song came up, you had like yeah. seconds to sort of quickly <laughs> move all these knobs and sliders around and, uh, you know, get to, get to another sound. And, uh, yeah, that was pretty awful, but you know, at the time it, it was state of the art. Um, mm. so yeah, so yeah, that, that's kind of the musical history. I mean, I, I, yeah, there's various things along the way. I mean, well, again, it's slightly off topic, but um, my dad, this is back in um, London, he was into Tropical Fish and he was a member of a club um, in Ealing. And um, one of the members was a guy called uh, Dick Mills, who actually worked for the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Um, and obviously he associated with Delia Derbyshire and things. He, you know, obviously created the Doctor Who uh, theme oh, tune. Oh, wow. So, you know, I can remember chatting to him and having a you know an interest in synthesizers and those dalek sounds and all that kind of thing so yeah mm. it's, it's kind of a, a thing that i've always you know been interested in and i think the synthesizer thing kind of took over um you know again in in the early 80s when they became affordable really drum machines and all that kind of stuff but um of course they never we didn't have these were even pre-midi um now you you plug in a usb midi but in those days midi was a five pin din which it still is in some cases mm. um but, but we didn't even have proper midi um it was just literally plugging in stuff with different control values and nothing stayed in sync and all this kind of thing i'm sounding like a real old dinosaur but oh no no it's uh <laughs> historical context um, um, well it is it is historical because it, it makes me kind of appreciate the almost simply when i hear someone say Oh, they can't install a plug-in or something like that. I think to myself, well, well, 40 years ago, <laughs> it, it was like totally different. And, you know, it was really different issues mm. that we faced in terms of hardware connectivity. Mm. Now it's all software driven. Um, but yeah, I, I think having that, that grounding in, um, sort of synth history and stuff is, is kind of giving me an appreciation for almost the simplicity of today. But obviously there, there's different. Uh, issues and things and especially obviously with the, the disability um, yeah to, to cope with that 
Yeah. Was um a lot of um instruments back then would have been tactile though. I would assume mm. that that would be easier for people blind or low vision. Yeah. Um. Well, for one thing, I mean, um, I've got retinitis pigmentosus, which is a degenerative eye disease. So, um, back in those days when I was like seventeen or eighteen, I I uh, still had uh, a modicum of well, good day vision really compared to now. Mm. Uh, which I haven't got any now other than light perception. Um, so really in those days, it was only um, night vision that was the, the main thing, um, mm. course, which does did present a, a, an issue when I was at gigs and things because they were poorly lit. So mm. I used to have like a little uh, reading lamp on the side of my um, keyboard stand on, on stage and uh, that enabled me to kind of move the sliders and see a bit. But yeah, you're right. It, it was much more tactile which is kind of without moving forward too much, which is why I like the complete control thing, because that is ultimately mm. tactile. T- to me, when it comes to like programming a synth, it's a, it is a, a knobs and sliders job rather than arrowing up and down a, a, a parameter list with a keyboard, which you know some people are used to and, and do it very well. But uh, yeah, to me, it's still still those knobs and sliders that kind of make it doable, really. Yeah. Yeah. So that prior learning helped you adapt making music as your condition progressed? Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a, a learning curve um, in terms, you know, because obviously I, I became familiar with, you know, synthesizers and then the recording side in those days was like a, a four-track cassette-based porter studio mm. and the likes of Tascam and people like that. Yeah. Um, again, very tactile. You know, you got to know the, the knobs and sliders and all that kind of thing yeah. and mixing desks and all, all that kind of stuff so um yeah so it was uh, another learning curve when everything started to become computerized and in the box because you know you 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 just haven't got that kind of instant tactility that you you do have with that it, you're using a, a mm. keyboard instead so um yeah it's not it's kind of totally different and and slower workflow in that sense as well mm-hmm. There wasn't that immediacy, you know, where you'd mm. instantly turn the knob or something, and because you knew where that knob was, and you know, you'd, you'd audibly hear the change straight away. Whereas um, the, the next sort of generation, where it became all computerized, you had to tab to a slider and then mm. control arrow and so, and hope that it was, you know, accessible. So it, yeah, it's totally different in that sense. So yeah. Yeah, what set, sort of setup do you run? Um, what sort of door do you use at the moment? Yeah, well, again, the, the computerized was a sort of transition. So I started off like a lot of blind users, um, uh, probably around 2009, 2010, using um, Cape Hawk Sonar um, with JAWS. Um, and I kind of got used to that. But then say, uh, Cape Hawk Sonar got really quite long in the tooth and there was you know, new things coming out, which um, it just hadn't been, you know, kept up to date with, although it was great at the time. Mm. Um, so I, I then sort of realised I was also on Windows 7, which was kind of reaching the end of its life. Um, so I, I, I realised I had to sort of jump ship and look for something different. And then I tried briefly, I tried Samplitude, um, which again was a Jaws-based scripting. Uh, Steve Spamer, um, he used to do lots of um, hotspot clicker sets for various virtual instruments, and they also started to progress over and um, look at Samplitude as, as an alternative in terms of a door. Um, and I, yeah, it, it was good, but I, again, it was this tie to Jaws because I found that there was you had to have a little bit of knowledge of scripting because um, if Steve 
it's it was the one man band thing where Steve was the um for me anyway the the only person that could sort of fix things mm. um so if something went wrong and you got one of these um i don't know unknown function call things you know it involved you know contacting him and doing a tandem call and trying to work things out which i ultimately i found was kind of getting in the way of the workflow so i'd heard about reaper um, which is what i'm using now um and various people have said oh no it's too it's too geeky too complex you know, stay away from it. And I I kind of thought, well, actually, I will give it a go. Mm. Um, and I think Reaper had moved on. Uh, I can't recall the name of the previous accessibility uh, method, but the Asara um, mm. screen, that, that project had launched and was kind of getting better all the time. Um, so, and, and yeah, literally, I, I installed Reaper. They've got a, you know, a brilliant sort of um, uh, marketing kind of platform where you, you don't have to pay for it immediately. You can try it out for as long as you like. It's very affordable anyway when you do decide to do the right thing and buy it. Mm. Um, and obviously the Asara script and this kind of thing was all all free as well and supported very well by uh, the blind and visually impaired community. So literally within a morning, I was up and running and recording and I thought, like, well, what was all the fuss about? This is actually really <laughs> right it's kind of working for me um yeah. and it's like like any software um you kind of learn what you need to do it's like a spreadsheet excel spreadsheet you know you can use it to add up columns a and b in the simplest form um but ultimately if you want to go on and do much more complex things with tabs and linking stuff um you can so and, and reapers are, are kind of a bit like that if you're using an, an analogy like that because you know you can you know, basically have um, tracks and sends and, you know, create all these sub projects and yeah, you can do video in it. It's uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm just finding it great. Um, you know, I'm probably only scratching the surface, but um, it, I'm finding it very, very good. I've been using it for probably getting on for three years now. Um, and it's just kind of remembering all the short code uh, cuts and things and the keyboard stuff. But uh, no, I think it's well supported and, and, it, and it's kind of available to everyone. So um that's a lengthy yeah. answer to what but yeah reaper is is the one for me i think for this foreseeable certainly what's your opinion um on door accessibility just in in the sense that there may be um blind users that um might want to make different types of music um mm. say with Ableton Live, uh, which is yeah. more sequencer based, what's your opinion on, just overall on accessibility? Because they're not a lot of them. They're aren't. not a lot. They're not a lot. Uh, and I, I, at the end of this, I must um, provide you some resources because um, Scott Chesworth from the I mean, not just Scott, but um, there was something like a door comparison audio um, set that was released probably a year ago, um, and Scott. Chesworth, who's a great ambassador for, for Reaper, did one on Reaper. And I'm trying to think, I think it was Steve Spamer did the one for Samplitude and also featured was Pro Tools, I think Slough did. And uh, there was one for Logic as well. So they, they, they were kind of comparing like for like the four main DAWs that are currently accessible. Mm. Um, and obviously each one has their own ambassador and, you know, they're all going to say that theirs is the best. So, um, but other ones that are kind of, um, you know, obviously we'd love to be able to use just aren't accessible at the moment. Like you mentioned Ableton Live. There are plans to make it accessible. Um, I believe um, the guys from uh, Ableton were at an audio conference a year or so ago and, um, you know, following various presentations were kind of inspired and 
want to make it accessible but it's not always as straightforward as it sounds and and you know mm. this is kind of the, the thing we have you know partly with with native instruments in where you've got a, a kind of a legacy product that's been out there for for years um and in some cases has their own graphic structure i mean i'm not a coder so i'm a lot of this is guesswork but this is what kind of people tell me mm. um that it's it's not always like an overnight thing that has no. to be sort of elements that have to be addressed one by one and it's very slow you know people do complain oh those they've had years to do this but it, yeah. it really is, it really isn't as as easy or simple as it sounds but you know things are progressing i, I might have heard of juice which is kind of a programming uh, language yeah. which that's recently got a uh a sort of more enhanced accessibility layer in version oh wow uh, 6.1 onwards um and lots of developers are starting to use that um even though they're not always aware that there's this accessibility layer but instantly out of the box it's making certain elements more accessible um oh, and wow. it's kind of an education process to talk to these guys and say well you know you can actually make it even better for us if you do mm. this mm. and uh, and stuff like that so yeah so back to your original question things like ableton um i haven't tried it but as i understand it it's, it's not accessible Again, things like Cubase, which is another one. Um, I've heard that um, the, the Bandcamp version of Cakewalk is reasonably accessible. Again, I haven't tried it, though, because I, I think having a DAW is very much like a musical instrument. It's better to learn one and mm. learn it well than, than skip around. But, um, you yeah. know, if you find one that works for you, then, then go with it. But yeah, I, I don't know, because... Again, Ableton, I think there's visual elements where you would be like dragging and dropping things in and beat matching and yeah. stuff like that. So it's kind of, you know, how do you, how do you actually make that accessible? You know, the best will in the world, some things just aren't ever going to be properly accessible in the way mm -hmm. that we want them to be. Um, especially in a live situation. You imagine if, if you wanted to use Ableton in a, a live club and you've got music and you're trying to hear your speech and all this kind of thing. I, I kind of just, I, I Maybe I'm being short-sighted, but I, I just can't sort of think that it would ever work in, in an equal way that a sighted user would be able to use it. Mm. But, yeah, you know, don't give up. It, it's always possible. I just wanted to talk about kind of like the abundance of free music technology resources and education um, but for people living without disabilities, uh, i.e. I learned how to use digital audio workstations through youtube and it was all free and um i had no problem as uh with my i have the same eye condition i can still see uh fairly well um but that's not the case for blind people um mm. that were born blind what what do you think um needs to happen do you think more people need to come out with more education or um... yeah it's um it's a tricky one yeah i mean it, it it's um obviously we're living in a world of kind of inclusiveness and um you know disability laws and things and discrimination acts and things like that so that's kind of helping in some ways how they actually address it again you have to kind of um overcome the the technical barriers to actually you know, you can demand these things and, and they can try to deliver them. But obviously, like as I was mentioning before, there, there's technical barriers that have to be overcome as well at the, the, the same time. Mm. Um, there's there's various organisations that um, 
uh, promoting um, disabled music. I mean, over here in London, we've got uh, something, I think it's Drake Music, mm. um, various other ones that, that that do that kind of thing. And they're, you know, trying to, um, you know, adapt, you know, ways of making things. This all. And uh, obviously we're you know, discussing largely um, music technology, but, um, you know, equally, equally there's, um, you know, classical musicians and things like that so and the rnib they have sort of the, the fund and things like that set up to to help so um yeah go, going forward it's 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 a difficult one i, I don't really know how it's going to progress but um, mm. I, I think technology is, is obviously going to be the answer and you know voice control and things like that um so yeah it's uh I, I haven't got a hundred percent answer for you, but but it, yeah. it's you know it's heading in the right direction. I I've certainly seen a change in the last decade in terms of how um, accessible things have, have, have become, and uh, you know obviously things like to, to me things like complete control has certainly helped push that along. It's still not perfect, but mm. um, you know it's it's making things accessible out of the box. You know by having something where you can just turn on the speech. Yeah. Um, without having to sort of program a, a separate script or macro for a screen reader. Yeah. Um, that that's the thing, and there is a you know I, I can understand there's a lot of frustration thing when things don't instantly work. So there, there's a, a kind of a user learning curve as well. So, um, but yeah, I, I think certainly think we're going in in the right direction. Uh, what are the main barriers a blind user might face when trying to engage in digital music production? Well, it, it is. I mean, obviously, using the software is is the main thing, especially when you're talking about a digital workstation, because um, you know it's it's all driven between you know recording and setting things up and installing and things like that. I, I guess that there's a, a a fundamental knowledge. Uh, it doesn't have to be ultra you know, complex, but uh, an understanding of, of signal flow and how things actually work. Cause, um, you know, we do get kind of people on the, the Reaper list that, uh, come in and, you know, want to be making, you know, top class music kind of from the get go without having any real understanding. And it's kind of, you've got to kind of explain to them how, what they need to do. Mm. Um, there's also a, a you know wide variety of music types. You know, some people play an instrument. People like you were saying about Ableton and creating house music. I mean, even creating house music with samples can be done uh, with something like Reaper because it's got you know great media. You can drop media onto tracks um, and and kind of it will you know tempo sync them all this kind of thing. You can build up tracks quite easily that way. Um, so, you know, that's, it's not doing it the same way that Ableton would, and you wouldn't be able to do it in a live situation, but, uh, equally, it's just, you know, easily enough, you know, capable to, to do that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so yeah, it is, it's learning your, you know, a screen reader that's going to access, um, you know, the various parts that you, you need to get to, which, you know, I appreciate they're not going to know what they're <laughs> going to need to get to right from the get go, but it's, it's, you know, learning how to, you know, add a track, add an instrument, um, you know, finding virtual instruments that are going to be accessible, you know, getting a MIDI controller and a, a reasonable sort of computer that's going to be able to run those things. It, you know, it's getting those components together, um, from the start you know if they're going to be using heavily sample based things you know try and avoid getting a, a an old mechanical hard drive and going for an ssd obviously again i appreciate it's the money is sometimes mm. a barrier so mm. you know it, it's kind of getting the best you can you know for, for what's in your budget 
and um yeah kind of joining fellow blind people in various communities because that that's the best way to you know learn because obviously there's, there's people there that have crossed those barriers themselves and, and can give you tips on you know doing that kind of thing um which is again you know why i started running the complete control list because uh, it's very daunting for, for newcomers and there's lots of terminology i get confused between complete control contact and uh, you know, various com- complete software suites and it, and it just goes into one big mush. So I kind of, you know, thought I, I'd try and cut through some of that and, um, you know, mm. cut out all the jargon that helps. So again, like I say, a, a Reaper community, whether it's on an email list or a WhatsApp group, Logic, Pro Tools, Sampletude, they've, they've all got their own, um, you know, communities. So that, that is kind of the best way. And, um, you know, um, yeah, search on the web. You'll, you'll, you'll find something, I would think. Could you tell us? a bit more about complete control technology and you how you came to start using the keyboards yeah complete control so it's it came out in i think it was 2015 originally so the idea being that it, it would be a, a midi controller that run a host called complete control so on its own complete control software um it's kind of like an empty bucket so what you do is you put in plugins that work within it so you know initially obviously it was intended only for sort of native instruments products so um within it you could have contact you could have fma you could have absinthe reactor so they'd all be there under one host at a time um and you'd be able to kind of browse your categories your your product your category the type like bass um, drums you know whatever keyboards you'd kind of filter them all down um until you ended up with this final sort of preset list of tree and it just kind of brings everything together in a single kind of workflow and kind of speeds things up um so initially that wasn't accessible out of the box. There was no speech or anything like that. Then I think it was in 2016, two of the guys, um, Tim and Carl from uh, Native Instruments, they have like these uh, in-house hackathons um, and they kind of got together over the weekend and kind of delivered text-to-speech, although it was quite rudimentary at the time, within within the Complete Control software. So, you know, when you did this browsing and stuff, it would actually read things out. Native Instruments, and I think almost by their own admission, realised... And, and free to say it now that they, they weren't always the, the most responsive when it came to you know, accessibility. I mean, I can remember writing to them back in, I don't know, 2012, 2013, and, you know, didn't get a response or very little response in terms of things. So I think they were obviously aware that there was a situation where there were blind users wanting to use their products, but they just didn't kind of have the answer. Mm. Um, so yeah, these, these two guys, you know, getting together and doing that, um, just made it possible. So initially it was, it was only on the Macintosh. Um, and then at the end of 2016, uh, I was speaking to Tim and we got various other people, Tim Burgess, who's, um, a music technologist over here and to, br- to bring it to Windows and um, kind of never looked back since really. So literally, yeah, and they've added various things where you can have something like, say, Spectrosonics Omnisphere, which is kind of a very popular um, synthesizer, nothing to do with native instruments at all. But um, they can be, the, the presets from that product can be converted into what we call NKSF, which is the complete control format. Mm. Um, so complete control can read those presets. And when you load one, kind of under the hood, complete control says, oh, that belongs to Omnisphere, I'll mm. load up Omnisphere. And, 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 you know, lo and behold, there's literally probably hundreds now of, um, you know, third party synthesizers as well as native instruments own, you know, contact sample players and reactor and all those kind of things, um, that have now been kind of brought under this sort of big 
tree of complete control. So that's it, you know, in a, in a nutshell, it sounds, sounds simplistic, but there's, you know, a lot of stuff going on under the hood. If you had um, a complete control keyboard and then a third party plugin that had was designed with NKS, would the voiceover be announced? All of the uh, macros and stuff like that. Well, some are. Again, this this obviously depends on on the developer. If it's done, um, you know, people like um, Yuhi who do things like Zebra and Diva. They, the, the the process of making something NKS compatible means they have to expose the parameters that are in their user interface um, for host automation um, and there's a you know a physical job involved in that um, in that they have to kind of literally sit there with the mouse and drag and drop them onto kind of virtual knobs and things um, and there's a bit of well there's quite a lot of planning that needs to go into to creating a, a, a preset you know the, the page structure uh, you could have you know 10 pages and you might not want your oscillators to be on page one and but you know you prefer to have your mixing controls on page one and your oscillator that kind of thing so there's a structure involved and not every you know programmer or, or developer kind of done that in a, a sensible way and and sometimes it's done without the thought of blind or vision impaired people using it which is kind of what i do with complete you know, you know complete access trying to educate them to a certain extent you know they'll make sunny in case compatible and leave out things that are desirable for us that actually make a, a big difference so yeah out of the box they don't all you know do it i mean obviously native instruments are fairly uh well they are aware and they they try to make sure that their parameters does work but certainly yeah, on on what we call the plugin edit side so when you load a preset um it's automatically goes into this plugin edit and that's where you would find parameters like you know on a synthesizer you'd be you know, tweaking the oscillators and the envelopes and things like that. And and yeah, admittedly, that does vary. But uh, again, you have to com- kind of compare it to with or without complete control. So, you know, you, you can do stuff with complete control that you wouldn't be able to do without it. So, you know, it's it's uh, kind of swings and roundabouts to a certain degree. But mm, I, mm. I think overall, in terms of the workflow, literally, if you didn't have complete control, you would load up, I don't know, uh, a, a VST instrument, you'd have to navigate to the, the the user interface you'd have to try and find the presets with your screen reader um once you've loaded a preset you'd then have to load up a parameter list and try and tweak it and jump up and down with the arrow keys to try and get so it's a very slow mm-hmm. process but for me complete control is that workflow now i can just browse through and find um spectrosonics omnisphere press a preset button it's loaded it's there i can play it straight away um and then you know even if i can't fully program a, a sound from scratch um if i've got a preset that i like the sound of i can certainly tweak various parts of it to, to make it more personalized so that's that's kind of the way i go and i don't i have to I hold my hand up, i don't spend too much time completely programming sounds from scratch these days anyway usually i know kind of what i'm wanting to hear in my head so i know how to fairly quickly find uh, a sound that's close to it so yeah and it's kind of offered me the you know the ability to kind of just edit it enough to to what i want really even the um, cheapest M32 model, uh, I mm. believe, has um, you can favorite sounds. So, do you think that um, the cheapest model, which is about 139 US dollars, uh, I think it's 250 in New Zealand dollars, um, right? In in your opinion, do you, do you th- do you think that has enough uh, assistive features for someone to get started in digital music production? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, it's um, it's got all the same accessibility as, um, you know, even the, the higher models. The only the, the, the differences are um, predominantly the way that you browse, for instance, on, say, something like the S series, which is the, the more expensive range. Mm. Um, you've got basically the keyboard has eight um, knobs on it and then a mm. large encoder knob. Um, so on the S series, those eight knobs would be like a, a database filtering system. So you'd have your vendor your product name and then banks and then uh, instrument types, subtypes, character, and then uh, then finally uh, this uh, the encoder where you'd actually sort of find the preset. So mm. you can use those knobs to kind of filter, um, you know, you, you change the type to drums if you want drums, you change the product name to a certain type if you're looking for a certain manufacturer, filter it down that way. Whereas on the, the A series and the M32, um, the filtering is all done via one large encoder knob. So you, it, it kind of rotates and it tilts in four directions and you can also press it down. Mm. Um, so it's a slightly slower process, but I, I think I'm, I'm only saying that because I'm so used to using the S series. Yeah. Um, but, but equally, you know, there's people that are just used to having an A series and an M32 and get on absolutely fine with it. Yeah. In other respects, though, um, once that sounds loaded, those eight knobs become the, the parameter uh, knobs. You've got page buttons for going through the various pages. Um, you can favorite the sounds. You've got slots where um, an instrument is always loaded on slot one and then slot two onwards. You've got um, NKS compatible effects that you could add on to that instrument sound. Uh, mm. Things like guitar rig and um, things like, you know, all sorts of compatible ones like that. Yeah, so you can you can do all pretty much uh, exactly the same. It's just really the browsing that's different. And mm. obviously the keyboard hasn't got, you know, after touch and things like that it's got it's semi-weighted and velocity sensitive um it's got like touch strips rather than a traditional mod wheel on the m32 do you think more people need to think about providing resources aimed at helping disabled people engage in music do you think public awareness needs to happen so everyone that is creating resources can keep in mind there are disabled people who learn differently or do you think more people from the blind low vision community need to make more resources that are dedicated to us? I, I think it's a mixture of the two really I mean I do find within the blind community there's always various leaders. Um, I don't say that sort of gloating. There's people that are willing to step up the mark, up to the mark, contact developers, and there's there's people that don't that, that sit back and you know just want it complain, but um, don't always do too much about it. So unfortunately, sometimes it ends up being the same people that are contacting the developers and the companies and doing the legwork. In some cases, you know, you can get a good rapport with the the companies. Other cases. Is they you probably get the untimely feeling oh it's like oh him again complaining or yeah um yeah so I think sometimes on mass would work better if people were to kind of write into um you know support and things like that and ask yeah, there's certain ways of going about you know you can demand or you can kind of ask mm. um you know in a sort of a, you know good way and and obviously compliment them on their products as well they like to get complimented so yes yeah, there's ways of going about going about things and um I think you know if people individuals did more than I'm leaving it to sort of uh, individuals within the, our community that that might help but you know again I'm yeah. happy to sort of you know, work as spokesman for things like that yeah um as I say there's there's people like Scott on Reaper list there's Andre Louis um he's on Logic and Complete Control on the Mac side um you know Steve Spamer you know we've all and Phil Muir we all do 
our bits as much as possible. Um, mm. but, and regards the industry, um, sure, there, there's again, it's education. Um, you know, I through KK Access and the work I've done there, I've always sort of done introductory um, letters and things and, and told them kind of what I'm about. And they've always been sort of, oh, wow, we didn't realize that Complete Control had this speech feature and this kind of stuff. And they've actually been quite intrigued and, and been very willing to kind of do modifications and done, you know, various testing for upcoming releases and things like that. So, you know, they're, they're you know, at the end of the day, they realize that blind and visually paired people who've got money in their pocket to spend as well mm-hmm. albeit we are a, a small community in you know comparison to the the sighted customers but um they know you know to do the right thing and you know we're in 2022 now and yeah um, we should should be doing addressing things like that so um mm. it's a kind of mixture of the, of the two you know we need to do more from our from our community mm. to make um, people aware um and they sometimes need to sort of listen to us more but then you know if we're not talking then they're not listening so yeah. <laughs> it's kind of goes hand in hand so yeah. uh yeah what's next um what would you like to see happen to make music tech more accessible yeah it's 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 addressing those issues making more things accessible out of the box without me having to and other people having to sort of contact them after the, they've released something thinking about things from uh the user interface development stage mm. um often with, with things certainly like contact contact is a sample player um and until you put a load a sample uh, library into it it's just empty um so therefore it's it's down to individual developers to divide design their user interfaces um in a way that when it's loaded in there we can do stuff with it um again there's a you know a bit of an onus back to the native instrument to make contact accessible which i hope they will mm. in the future um but you know making um the, the user interface in working a way that um when they do add, add nks to it that they are actually able to add, add these sort of host automation to parameters and things like that or buttons that we're able to click um because a lot of them are kind of very visual based and drop down menus and sub menus which is yeah. great for user but um in terms of actually trying to make that accessible um is is just yeah, you know, it just doesn't yeah. work. And in case it's a great system, but it does have its limitations. You know, things like, um, and, and again, this is a, another native interesting like a, a drum library. We need to be able to get to the mixer section to root individual drums to tracks and stuff like that. Just basic things that um, our sighted peers kind of take for granted, um, mm. but we can't can't do so there, there's little simple things that, that sound simple on the, the surface but obviously from our community they'd be really appreciated if those could be addressed but um yeah just uh, otherwise really it's just on onwards and upwards and mm. you know make, making things um, generally accessible via keyboards and um yeah it was really exciting to talk to chris and have him share his perspective on the current accessibility of digital audio workstations and MIDI controllers, and the things we can continue to do to advocate for accessibility in music technology products. This podcast has been funded by the New Zealand Music Commission and brought to you with help from producer Jesse Austin-Stewart and Arts Access Aotearoa. I'm Sam Morgan, and this has been the Able Audio Podcast. <laughs>